Are you struggling to create engaging content for your B2B brand? Let Podcast Town help. Our expert services will help you develop a successful content marketing strategy, making your brand stand out and increase revenue. With our guidance, you'll create quality content that resonates with your audience and builds brand loyalty. Visit our website at podcasttown.net to learn more and to get started today. We help you launch, grow, and maximize. What's up, enterprisers? Welcome to another episode of the Enterprise Now podcast, where we shape the mindset of the high achiever to think like an entrepreneur. We talk with masters of the craft to get the cheat codes to success, helping elite enterprisers level up and maximize their brand. I'm your host, LZ, the mayor. Now let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Enterprise Now Show. Folks, listen, I know I say this every week, but I say it every week because it's true every single week. I have with me Jonathan Kronstead, and we are going to get into some golden nuggets today. But John, before we get into the good stuff, can I get an oh yeah? Oh yeah. Perfect, perfect. So first thing I want to know is leadership. Leadership is one of those things I have a little, it's not a love-hate relationship, but I have a little bit of a twist to leadership. But before I give my twist, I want you to, to kind of go through what's your take on leadership and how do you approach it? So leadership is such a broad, broad term. I, it can mean leading yourself. It can mean leading a small group. It can mean leading a large group. And I think that every different type of leadership is going to bring a different requirement. So if you look early stage at my journey when I was in college or early stage career as a salesperson, primarily that was leading myself. You know, how am I getting myself out of bed, driving results in the capacities that I'm in? early in management, leading small teams, then moving into the C-suite, leading entire companies and organizations. Now as a board director, leading from a vision perspective, no longer being in the operational capacity, but still needing to lead and calibrate to a vision nonetheless. So I think first of all, for leadership to really dive into it, it's more what stage of leadership are you in and choosing the tools that are best suited for that journey. It's, it's interesting that you frame it that way, because I found that a lot of times people don't lead themselves very well. So talk about that a little bit. So it's kind of the first step. It's really hard to lead somebody else unless you first lead yourself. Talk about that. How'd you develop that? Well, there's no doubt about it. You can't fool everyone. And unfortunately, you're the easiest person for you to fool. I think so many of us oftentimes get stuck in our own heads and in our own garbage about how we feel about ourselves, how we're coming across. And I think that one of the reasons why you see so rare success very early in 20s and 30s, and it's far more likely that your peak earning years or your peak achievement years are going to come into your late 30s, early 40s, 50s, is primarily because it takes us that that long to get comfortable in our own skin. It takes us that long to be comfortable asking life what we want from it. It takes us that long to hold other people accountable. For me, there was something in college that I learned very early on, which was Jim Rohn talked about the idea of journaling. Uh, he talked about poor people have big televisions and rich people have big libraries and those libraries should have your journals in them about your journey. And so for me, journaling became that accountability. It became that I'm writing down what I did, what I'm hoping to do 
And every time I went to go revisit that book, I either would feel better about taking steps forward on my journey or feeling worse that I'm not doing what I know I needed to do. So I think by externalizing those feelings into a written format, it brings that level of accountability. Even as much when I started leading small groups of people early on in my career as a manager, the biggest thing to hold me back was my need to be liked. I went through a, a very powerful, powerful, I guess I would call it personal coaching session with a gentleman named Jim Fortin, who is one one of the my favorite sources for helping unscramble what's going on in your brain. And Jim actually asked me, he said, well, you know, Jay Cron, you're getting held back from holding people accountable because you need to be liked. Well, how do you know anyone actually likes you? And to shortcut the conclusion, you'll never know. You'll never know if anyone actually likes you. They might be faking it. They might be lying. They might be doing it for their own reasons. So if you're making decisions in hopes that somebody likes you that are ultimately self-defeating, probably a foolish path. And then he even took it a step further and he said, okay, Jacron, let's just say hypothetically, even though you can't figure it out, you somehow have the ability to discern whether somebody likes you or not. The next question is, how much does somebody actually need to like you for you to be able to feel effective in managing that person? And that was another one, because if I don't know if they're going to like me and I don't know how much they need to like me for me to be effective, I've now based all of my decisions on factors I don't know if they exist. And if they do, I can't measure them. So even that for me was a huge unlock of why am I basing so much of my process on something I can't control and can't quantify. So that need to be liked was a huge chink in my armor early on in my leadership career. Now, was that something that you identified because of coaching and mentorship or was that something that you self-identified? I would say 90% it was me making the same mistakes habitually and 10% a coach pointing it out. 90% of, man, why do I keep doing this? Why does this keep happening to me? And then 10% somebody saying, you know, John, you're really eager to be liked. You know, like, why is that so important to you? Where is that coming from? And it just really changed my perspective because my first reaction was absolutely not. I don't like to be liked. I'm an executive. I do what needs to be done, get the ball across the goal line. That's it. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you're right. I, I actually like being liked. And I don't know what that says about me, but I know that right now me being liked is prompting poor performance from the teams that I manage, prompting me taking on jobs that aren't mine, prompting me having a whole lot more stress and a whole lot more challenge. Maybe I should just try leaning into the idea of maybe I don't have to be liked. Maybe it's about the objective. Maybe it's about the agreement that we both made with each other of what we're going to achieve together. Maybe it's about something not me feeling like I'm being liked. And it was a huge unlock for me. It's one of those things that now, almost like when you see the matrix, you can't unsee it. I now see that desire to be liked is probably the number one Achilles heel in anybody in management or leadership positions today. It's what prompts people to go online and argue with strangers that they're never going to meet about stuff they don't even really care about because they feel like that person has, has somehow attacked them. So I need to be either right. I need to be liked. I need to defend myself. Like all of these things, that's where all of it comes from. And so for me, that was a huge, huge learning. Mm -hmm. So, Talk about fulfillment a little bit. I know that's something that's important to you. How does that play into the realization that, hey, I'm, I'm here to achieve a goal? And in my mind, if you're both working to achieve the same goal, then at, on some levels, that they're, they're going to like you just for the fact that you're on the same page and you're moving in the same direction. But talk about how fulfillment keeps that whole thing together and flowing in the right direction. I would have to say, as it relates to fulfillment, I 
kind of suck at it. Like if I'm honest and obviously being here on uh, podcast town, I'm not going to give you guys anything less than unedited what's really going on. Fulfillment for me is a very hard thing. I don't really celebrate accomplishments often. I don't take the time to spike the ball, get excited about what I just achieved. I'm very much wired that whatever I just did, it's done and I'm on to the next one. So I think fulfillment for me is something that I would probably choose a different word. I don't know that I'll ever be fulfilled. I would say I really try to stay focused on gratitude. I try to stay focused on growth. I try to stay focused on engagement. I try to stay focused in those areas because whenever I've tried to pursue something as big and amorphous as being happy or fulfilled, I've never been able to. You know, it's just one of those things that maybe business is rocking, but I'm really disappointed that I'm not working out and I'm not in the shape I want to be in. Or maybe I'm exercising, but, you know, I no longer have a great and meaningful company that I'm leading and I'm now a board director. Or, you know, I'm, I'm loving being married and being a dad to a three-year-old daughter, but hey, I'm, you know, not doing as much reading as I used to do. Like for me, I think there's always this habit that if I'm seeking something that requires equal success and focus in all areas, I've never been able to figure it out. I don't know how people do it in a balanced fashion. That's just never been my experience. That's interesting. I think for me, it is a journey. So, so similar to when you think about self-mastery, right? You're never mastered, right? Because you're a different person at 30 than you are at 40, than you are at 50. And so it's always this constant iteration and process of becoming. In my mind, fulfillment is, is much the same way. The things that filled my cup when I was 13 hopefully <laughs> don't fill my cup when I'm 33 or 43, right? So in my mind, it's one of those, one of those things where it's like, you never want to be nines across the board, right? It's always a, a process. And, and to your point, just having gratitude and, and recognizing that in the moment, this is where I want to be. And it gives me the most joy in this season. You mentioned engagement and growth. I'm curious to hear your story on how you got connected with Kajabi and how that's going. Totally. So Kajabi, without question, was one of the biggest blessings to ever come across my life and my career. It was the most fun I've ever had. It truly was everything an entrepreneur hopes for. So I met Kenny Reader. Kenny Reader was the co-founder of Kajabi. He actually coded all of the platform himself at night a year before the platform ever went public. Then about six months after the launch of the company, I met Kenny and started consulting for Kajabi. Was referred by a friend of a friend, was helping them with some marketing. And then they fired me. They fired me to actually work with Frank Kern six months later. And as a result, Kenny took me to a Starbucks, said, hey man, you young company. We got to reallocate funds. I was like, Hey dude, I get it. All good. Let's stay friends. So about two years after that, they hired me back as vice president of business development. And I lasted about a week and a half, took Kenny to the same Starbucks that he fired me at. And I quit because I got the offer to join digital marketer as their CEO. And I've always wanted to be a CEO and this was my chance. So man, I, Kenny, sorry, got to do it. And he laughed and he's like, all good, dude. Our friendship's grown. I fired you. You're quitting. I guess we're even. So we stayed friends for a few more years after that. And then in September of 2016, 
I was just coming back from a trip to Dallas. I was the GM of Success Academy, which was the digital education arm of Success Magazine, building courses and products with all the personalities that were in the magazine. Super, super fun project. And the owner of the company, Stuart Johnson, let me know that the job was available if I would be in Dallas. I was commuting from Southern California, was not ready to move to Dallas. I love Southern California. I don't want to be anywhere else. So I basically said, hey, I really appreciate it. I would love to be a part of this, but I can't move to Dallas. So I'm going to have to say, see you later. So that Monday morning, I'm in Kajabi's office. I was renting an office from Kajabi at the time because I needed an office space when I was working because I was commuting. And Kenny walks in, hey man, how was the weekend? I said, ah, you know, I probably going to need to figure out what to do next. I'm not going to be at success anymore. They wanted me to move to Dallas. And Kenny laughed and he just said, well, you know, you've grown, we've grown. We should probably sit down and figure something else out because it'll be easier than trying to move your shit out of the office. And I laughed and I said, yeah, you know what? You're totally right. Let's go. So we sat down, hatched a plan to really have my involvement be an opportunity and a catalyst to take what at that time was a very successful lifestyle business. At the time, the company was doing 6 million in ARR, 25 team members. And five years later, when Kenny and I both stepped out of operations and went to the board, the company had grown two. 1,153% and was doing over a hundred million in ARR with 400 team members and a $2 billion valuation. So it was definitely turned into a thing, but all of those numbers and all of that growth is something of course we're tremendously proud of, but we're far more proud of what it represents for the Kajabi heroes that are using the platform. The platform today now powers over $2 billion annually of GMV, which is a fancy term for what our users are selling through the platform. And that's not even inclusive of all the people that are transacting off of the platform and using our platform just to deliver the content. So really we're proud of that transformational force and the opportunity and superpowers that the software has been able to give those entrepreneurs. So unbelievable season, super, super grateful for it. And uh, Kenny and I are still friends to this day. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I want to dig d- uh, deeper there a little bit, but I, I want to put a pin in it. And I want to talk about culture and growth because I heard you say that the company w- was continually growing, but Growth doesn't just happen. Unpack that a little bit. How'd you guys grow? What are some insights that you learned through that process? Sure. So the most famous quote on culture is from Peter Drucker, who says culture eats strategy for breakfast. And he's actually right. This is one of those areas where I think today, the biggest mistake that most companies are making as it relates to their culture is they're trying to be everything to everybody. And you just simply can't be that. Whether you're looking at the customers you serve, the employees you have, or even your own internal goals, I really do think that you've got to get very, very precise on what those goals are and how those goals are, are brought about through an organization. So I've got a book coming out. Don't ask me when, because it'll be, you know, whenever it comes out, I, it's already been too long and I'm frustrated about it, but I keep changing it. So I'm the one to blame. But in the book, it's called Billion Dollar Bullseye, Grow As Big As You Want, As Fast As You Want, and Exit If You Want on Your Terms. And I talk about this through the I guess, teaching tool of a bullseye in a game of darts. And a lot of people think to win at a game of darts, you've got to be a great darts player. My philosophy is actually, if you start in the beginning with the bullseye and through mastering each of these concentric rings, your bullseye gets bigger and bigger. Every dart you throw is at a bigger surface area of bullseye for luck and serendipity to find you. So for me, the way you win at darts and the way you win at business is how big can you get your bullseye? And so if we think about the seven core areas of focus in a business, it's going to 
start in the middle with purpose. Then it's going to move to profit and product. Those three are foundational. If you don't have those three, you don't have a business. The amplifiers that are going to follow that are prestige, promotion, persuasion, and people. Prestige being your customer experience, promotion being your marketing, persuasion being your sales, people being the team that you build. So I want to go back to the center of that bullseye, which is purpose, and talk through culture in that lens. Because to me, culture is a reflection of your purpose. And your purpose is going to be two things, your internal purpose and your external purpose. Your internal purpose is one that I think a lot of people get wrong and don't give themselves permission to just be people. Your internal purpose is why you do what you do. And it can be as selfish as you want it to be. Your internal purpose can be popping bottles and dating models, private jets, getting rich, fast cars, whatever you want. And, you know, taking your family on year long trips, I don't really care. It has to be an internal purpose that resonates with you. And I feel like today, so many people feel like their internal purpose has to match their mission, vision, values and external purpose. And they get kind of get caught up in this guilt of like, well, am I really allowed to feel that way? Am I really allowed to say that? Am I really allowed to be motivated by that? For me, the internal purpose doesn't need to be shared, doesn't need to be put out into the world. That's purely why you do what you do. That is your internal fuel. Don't ever let go of it. The external purpose is also one that I have a lot of opinions about, and that is purely judge, jury, and executioner, your customers. They are all that matter as it relates to your external purpose. It is why you do what you do and who you do it for. And that matters more than anything else. And this is where I think a lot of companies in culture development really get lost because they try these mission, vision, values exercises. They create these flowery statements that are either the owner dictating it. So you have a team that's disengaged and doesn't like it and customers that don't care or you end up trying to co-create it with your team, and then it's diluted to a level of not being effective because it has to reflect the values of everyone in the organization. Otherwise, it becomes something that, again, is dictated and not effectual. So for me, I love the idea of an external purpose driven solely by what you do for your customers, and then using that as a magnet to attract the team members that also resonate with that. And so at Kajabi, our external purpose was always very self-evident, the success of our customers, the Kajabi hero. If you were on Kajabi, our number one goal, our divining rod, our decision-making true north was always your success. That was it. Not even the success necessarily of your customers, because we're not solving for the customer's customer. We're solving for our customer. And by using that and by having that be our lightning rod to attract team members, it gave us an unbelievable organization where people were really committed and understood the role that Kajabi played for our users. We weren't some middleware and some enterprise accounting software where businesses worked nine to five. And if something went wrong, it wasn't a big deal. We corrected it later. We're on the front lines of entrepreneurship where everybody that's using our stack we are their whole tech stack. We represent the college tuition, the rent payments, the grocery bills, the gas in the car. It was a level of responsibility that we wanted our entire team to know that's what Kajabi did. And by having a purpose that spoke to that, we attracted team members that were excited by that. And we had team members that weren't excited by that, that hopefully found a company they were excited about. And I think that today, more so than ever, there's so much pressure coming from every angle to have a mission, vision, value statement that everyone agrees with. If everyone agrees with, you're irrelevant. 
you're not memorable. You're not unique. You're not something special. Like everyone agrees that pizza is great, but until Domino's said fresh, hot 30 minutes at your door, there was no differentiation. Then Domino's came up with a different purpose, shot the lights out. So to me, that's where I think culture today is struggling so much because everyone feels like they have to have a culture that appeals to everyone. And that's not my opinion at all. I believe you needed a culture that is reflective of your external purpose and ruthlessly manages to that external purpose and let people self-identify. If they love it, they're going to love it. If they don't, they're going to leave it and find someplace else. And you should hope that they leave because it's far better that they leave and find someplace that lights them up, that gets them excited about life than trying to keep them only to have them be quiet quitting or the great resignation or however we're describing this world of unengaged team members. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the business side of that, managing that culture and that growth, right? Because that's all awesome and it works, right? You know that, but Managing it on the business side is a whole different animal. So for us, the number one book I would recommend that I loved on culture was Patty McCord. And Patty McCord, chief talent officer of Netflix, wrote a book that is one of my absolute favorites on culture. And she really talks a lot about how Netflix purposefully managed a culture. And we borrowed a lot from that book. So one of the things that Netflix does that we absolutely stole is something called a good goodbye. And a good goodbye is not, we're going to try and give you a performance improvement plan. We're going to beat you into submission until you quit and you hate life and hate us. We're not going to do that. We're simply going to have what's called a good goodbye. And the good goodbye was, hey, the company has different needs. You're going one way. We're going another way. We would like to help you with a soft landing and an opportunity to go find something that's a better fit for you. Because if we continue on this trajectory you're either going to get fired or we're going to have a really contentious working relationship. Now's the time to move in a different direction. And so that was a huge tool because it allowed us that whenever we had people that weren't culturally aligned, we knew what we needed to do. That if we're in a meeting and we're solving for something that is so unbelievably self-evident that we can see plain as day, we're solving for our external purpose, which is the success of our customers. And maybe we've got people in our engineering department or on our product team that are advocating for things that are easier for us, but not helpful for our customers. Or maybe they're advocating for things that are easier for the team, but not as good for our customers. We're going to have to have the discussion that says, hey, I hear you. I understand what you're saying, but you have to understand that our purpose is the success of our customers. And right now you're arguing for our team or you're arguing for your comfort zone or your own limitations or whatever it is. So you can either choose to move beyond them and let's solve for our customer here, or I don't have a choice but to find someone who will. Because if I don't, then my customers are going to see the downstream effects of that. And I can tell you from personal experience, in the moments that we didn't solve for our customer relentlessly and we said yes and we acquiesced, now what we've done is we've made a decision. We've made an inflection point that now is going to require our customer support experience to shoulder a burden that they shouldn't have to because they're going to have to justify why a certain feature isn't there that should be. Our marketing and promotion is going to suffer because they're no longer able to talk about a feature that we would see as a pretty big selling point. Our sales process is going to suffer because we don't have that. And our people strategy is going to suffer because I've got people in each of these departments that are now being hamstrung because of the downstream effects of that decision. So I think that good goodbyes are something that are utterly necessary because if you don't get comfortable with a good goodbye, 
what's going to happen is you're going to pay the price down the line over and over and over again of a decision that you should have made when you knew it was the right decision. Got it. Makes perfect sense. Can you shout out the other six? You gave me one. You said there were seven core areas of business. Purpose was the first. And just for the listeners, shout the, the other six. Sure. And we'll go in order, starting from the bullseye, moving out. So it's purpose, profit, product. Those are your core three. Then you've got your four amplifiers to follow, which is prestige, promotion, persuasion, people. Got it. So let's talk nuts and bolts a little bit. Were you guys the only game in town when Kajabi entered the market? No, definitely not. The company started out of really solving a need for ourselves. Kenny Reader was building a sprinkler toy at the time that he was planning on bringing to market via e-commerce called the Crazy Spray. It was kind of a PVC pipe car wash for bikes that you would just drive your bike through on a sidewalk and have fun. And his neighbors loved it. And he's like, all right, well, getting a lot of interest on this product. This could be pretty cool. And as an engineer, he realized very quickly didn't want to ship a physical product. So he was going to sell a ingredients, you know, kind of a purchase list from Home Depot, some instructional videos and congratulations, build it yourself. You got the plans, you got the parts list, go nuts. Well, there was no easy way to do that. There was no place to host the video behind a paywall, have a PDF that was downloadable, manage the purchasing. It didn't really exist in that format. So Kenny was like, I think somebody is going to need this thing. So started working on it and developing it. Now, when Kajabi initially came out, one of the things that was most unique about the story is Kenny called it marketing to the front row. And he actually went out and worked with three power users to beta test the platform by doing their product launches for them. And in doing so, had a powered by Kajabi logo on the little like little bottom corner of the page. And that created a wait list of people that were like, what is Kajabi? What is this platform that's running this thing? And that resulted in the wait list that resulted in the initial customers that the day Kajabi went live, Kajabi was a $1 million ARR software company with no institutional capital on day one. Pretty rarefied air in that regard. Wait. Well, say that again. Yes, on the first day of public availability, Kajabi was a $1 million ARR company with no institutional capital. So that shows you the power of product market fit, an idea, an engineer, worked out. So that was a very cool part of the Kajabi story. But no, we weren't the only. There were multiple WordPress plugins and, and other things that did parts of what we do. But what I think made Kajabi unique is Kajabi was the first one to take a broader view of it. So there might have been something that built landing pages or sales processes. There might have been video hosting platforms that would host videos. There might be merchant accounts and payment gateways where you could manage the purchasing of things. None of that existed all in one place. There were always these areas where, you know, yeah, you can connect six things together and do it. Kajabi was the first, to my knowledge, that offered all of it in one place under one roof and really built to fulfill that purpose of digital entrepreneurship. And then to make that even more interesting, in 2015, when the market had matured a little bit, Kajabi was launched in 2010. So for five years on the Kajabi Classic platform, People were loving life. And then 2015, Kenny starts to see the shift in the market, says, I got to tell you, I think we got to start over. 
this platform needs to have landing pages, email, marketing automation. We've got to have everything because our users need that. And right now they're using everyone else to do it. And they're hating trying to connect everything together. So here Kenny is, company's probably doing, I don't know, about 4 million in ARR maybe. And on a class, on what we called Kajabi Classic. So the platform that was built originally. And Kenny had the guts to basically say, we're going to cannibalize this business that's right now working really well. It's the business that brought us to the dance because I know that if we don't move into what's next, that's not going to be us leading the way. That's going to be us getting eaten by people that do lead the way. So literally cannibalized the Kajabi classic platform over a year, which was then new Kajabi that got launched now just Kajabi. And that's the platform today that is serving all of those users all over the world. And had Kenny not had that vision to say, it's good, but good is going to stand in the way of great. He had to sacrifice good to get to great. So there's a lot of lessons in that one as well. Now, is it tricky in terms of messaging, right? Because what I heard you say before is you need to be crystal clear on who you're serving, right? But at the same time, Kajabi is doing a lot of different things. Is it just that you're doing the things for the specific person? Or how do you straddle that line of, of focus and intention and not doing too many things? So it's a great question. And that's one that is all art, no science. You know, when Henry Ford was asked if he listened to the customer, he probably would have just tried to grow faster horses that ate less. So it's one of those things where I don't know the right answer for you. I know the right answer for Kajabi was remaining steadfastly focused on the outcome, which was the success of our customers. The success of our customers meant that when our customers needed email, we built email. When our customers needed automated live events, we built automated live events. It meant that whatever our customers needed, we were committed to staying on the forefront of that for the customers we served. Another example of this, except in the opposite direction, is the railroads and the automotive revolution, where the railroads owned everything. They were the wealthiest families. They were the most connected politically. I mean, you're talking about the ultimate power brokers back then were the railroads. And when all of a sudden the railroads heard about cars... They never thought we're in the transportation business, so we should probably buy up all these auto manufacturers because it's going to turn into a thing, which leads to trucks, which then takes away the validity of trains. They said, we're in the trains business, and that's why we're not going to do anything with cars. And that's why all of the railroads needed to be propped up by the government. And they almost went bankrupt multiple times, and you know they kind of got their lunch eaten by cars and semi trucks. And the trains kind of died because they were in transportation. They weren't in transportation. They were in trains. I think for us, at any point, we could have said, "Well." We know our customers use email to market their stuff, but we're not an email company. We're just a course hosting platform. Had we said that, the business probably would have continued to be successful, but it wouldn't have been as successful as it is today. It wouldn't have empowered as many creators as it has today because had we stayed in just the course business, we might have never attracted people that don't know how to connect a course platform to a payment gateway, to an email provider, to all of these other pieces. So I think that the specificity you're seeking or the specificity that I would advocate for is more in the purpose and in the who that you serve and the outcome they seek. And then continuing to put it through that acid test as you grow a company, because you're totally right. You can't do everything. And so are there areas that Kajabi has 
areas in but doesn't specialize in? Absolutely. There are areas of the platform that we built for a specific purpose that if your business grows to a, you know, eight or nine figure business, you may need something a little bit more robust. I don't know that you have to have it because what I find in this industry is most people think they need a lot more than they ever actually use. And they just go around platform switching, which is not profitable and doesn't really help anything. But certainly areas where we have said, okay, for the audience we serve, this is the right application. For the audience we serve, this is the right tool. And we typically ask that question over and over and over and over again, that whenever we're looking at building a feature, does this result in greater success for our customers? If the answer is yes, we better at least have a very good answer for how we're going to build it or how we're going to integrate with somebody that has it because our customers need it. Our purpose is their success. That normally answers most of those questions. Oh, so many questions. So let me just hit on this before it slips my mind. What you're describing speaks to me the value of having a visionary, somebody who understands where the market is, where it's going and how the organization fits in. But I'm curious to know, talk about the heart of what you guys do is digital entrepreneurship. And here at Enterprise, now we have a saying that we're changing lives through enterprise. And so for us, it's much deeper than just hosting a, a platform and interviewing brilliant minds. It's like we're affecting the livelihoods and the legacy of people who are gaining the, the value and the golden nuggets from these conversations. AI is here. It came in like a wrecking ball and in no time now has spurred an entire, literally an entire industry. What's going through your mind as you're an innovative com company that's, you know, high visionary? How are you guys thinking about AI and, and how it's impacting your end users? So I'm a much bigger fan of actual intelligence than I am artificial intelligence. That's the AI that I choose to focus on. I think that right now AI is an amazing tool, but it's a terrible leader. If you're counting on the fact that AI is going to replace your business, then you probably deserve to be replaced by AI. If the world needed information and that was what was important or relevant, we'd already be set. All of the information is online, available, free, in a, a disorganized and possibly not true fashion. But it's all out there and available. And AI is learning off of that and, and is a little bit better. But I think we're going to see AI go through the same adoption curve that we always see everything go through, that everyone's going to get really excited, like the Internet in 1995. And then come the year 2000, we're going to see Pets.com flame out and Webvan flame out and all of these other businesses flame out because they were vaporware, weren't right time, right place, right model. Model. And then we're going to see an Amazon and a Facebook and a Microsoft come out of what is right now early stage, but adventurous and very ill-defined use cases for AI. And then I think you'll begin to see things where it's going to show you the role of how timing works because Pets.com and Webvan were two of the largest dot-com failures from a $0 every total loss experience. But yet Chewy.com and Instacart is now two of the largest companies in that world. So the only difference between Instacart and Webvan or Chewy and Pets.com was timing. No other difference. Now, by last mile logistics coming into play, it made both of those valid business models, whereas previously they weren't. So I think what you're going to see is you're going to see AI come in. You're going to see people get really, really excited about it. And I think that you're going to see people probably overinvest in it. And then you're going to see it go through the exact same filtering process that every new technology goes through. 
I do think that you don't need to worry today about your job being replaced by AI, but depending on the job you're in, I think you should be asking, can your job be replaced by somebody who knows how to leverage AI if you don't? And the answer is probably. AI is really a force multiplier, especially for jobs that have any type of repetitive action. So if I'm an attorney and all I do is draft agreements, I'd be real nervous because AI can draft an agreement for you. Now, it's not going to be specialized. It's not going to be perfect. But if you've got a real attorney reviewing it, maybe a regular agreement takes four hours. And now with AI, it takes 30 minutes. That's going to change that industry. So where I would say AI is playing a role for us at Kajabi is we're asking how can we remove the work that doesn't require actual intelligence with AI. So if somebody is staring at a blank screen, not knowing what to do, but they can tell us that they're really interested in health, exercise, and vegan cooking, our AI generator is going to share with them ideas for what they would be able to teach online or ideas for ways that they could present their value proposition. So it's more to me about an amplification of actual intelligence or a tool to be utilized by someone with actual intelligence. But the days of the robots coming for us, they're not here yet. I don't know when they'll be here or if they'll be here. I think the other thing that we always underestimate in situations like this is the regulatory hurdles that slow down every innovation or business because the U.S. government definitely does not have a track record of just letting technologies run wild. They don't do it. You know, if, if they did, I don't know if we'd be better off. I don't know if we'd be worse off. I'm you know, not going to wade into those political waters, but I think you're going to see a whole lot of misuses of AI, whether it be the images, the deep fake videos, everything that's possible to really, really mess with people. And I think that you're going to see the government step in and, and begin to regulate it pretty heavily because it's something that if left unchecked could be pretty dangerous. So I would say it's not going to happen as fast as we think it will. It never does. It's going to go through the same adoption curve, like everything that we've ever seen. But I think that it is something that in your margin time, I would be paying attention to it. I would be playing with it. I'd be getting familiar with it. It would almost be akin to when computers came out, you saying, I'm not going to learn to type or use a computer because I don't want to. That would be a foolish play. But when computers came out, if you thought they were going to take your job, so you moved to the mountains and started a farm so you could live off the land because a computer was going to take your job anyway, that was probably a bit of an overcorrection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if I'm a young SaaS founder listening or watching to this today, what words of wisdom do you have for me? Wow, that's a great question. I would say make sure you're solving a real problem. I think that most people starting out in many ways get enamored with the idea of being in business or the idea of what they're building or the idea of being an entrepreneur, focusing on their two and a half hour self-care routine in the morning with gratitude journaling and cold plunges and saunas and weightlifting. And then it's meditation and then it's whatever. And you got 15 minutes of actual work and you're wondering why you're not successful. That's just dumb. But I would just say, if you really do find a problem that needs to be solved, and you live closer to your customer than anybody else, you can't help but win. Now, that being said, if you're not solving a real problem and your business came out of the loose financing environment where previously you could sell $100 bills for $20 because there was financing to support it, that's a problem. Or if you're not really listening to your customers and you're more of an artist building what you want rather than what they want, that's probably going to be a problem. So for me, it's all about the customer. It starts and ends with the customer. Everything ends with their success, their love of the product. If you're seeing net revenue retention or you're seeing a company that you can't stop the growth, whether you're marketing or not, you're onto something, lean in and have a whole bunch of fun. 
So I know that you can't say the name of a company, but what's an example of a company that's in your history that you said, okay, you're not solving a real problem? Hmm. I would say that, boy, that's a good question without taking some shots, because whatever I say is, is going to be pretty identifiable. Okay. I would, you know, actually, I'm going to answer it in a way that will be very helpful, but will not require me to take any shots. Yeah, I think we, we don't any, want you to take any shots. I think any business that requires large amounts of financing indefinitely is not solving an actual problem. That if you have a business that keeps saying, well, if we just get to the next round, if we just get to the next round, if we just get to the next round, you really have to ask yourself, how badly does the market need this? Because normally what that's indicative of is that you're creating fake demand through lots of marketing, lots of sales, and you're just doing everything you can to force feed this into the market. And that normally shows when you have a business that has terrible churn. Because churn is, this didn't solve a problem for me, I'm out of here. So if your business has terrible churn, it's because it's not actually a need to have, it's a nice to have. Or it's, you know, a, it might even be an I don't need to have it at all. That's really where I would look. So to me, the indicator of not solving a real problem is high churn. The indicator of solving a real problem is net revenue retention that grows every year. You look at what Figma did and why Adobe had to buy them for $20 billion, which everyone is like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they paid that for it. If you knew the math, Adobe didn't have a choice. Figma's net revenue retention was so good that a dollar this year was worth a dollar 40 the next year that was worth a dollar 70 the year following. The geometric multiplication of a business that builds that way eventually they would have just eaten Adobe's lunch because you couldn't stop it. Mm. That's really what you're looking to create. So for me, if you're wondering if you're actually solving a real problem, your customers will tell you in the early stage and the numbers will tell you in the middle to late stage. In the next six months, what are you looking forward to? What's got you excited? Finishing my book. Once it's done and out there and I'm no longer editing or I'm messing with it, I will be thrilled. Cannot wait for my book to be done. Can't wait to get it in the hands of everybody and can't wait to see where it takes me. I'm hoping it introduces me to other companies that are very similar to Kajabi, you know, great product market fit, unbelievable purpose and vision and hoping to scale and take on the world and helping them do it. So other than that, just excited to be a dad, be a husband, you know, hang out and have some fun. Remind me again, what does your book cover? So the book is called Billion Dollar Bullseye, How to Grow as Big as You Want, As Fast as You Want, and Exit If You Want on Your Terms. And the book is going to really be all of the learnings from Kajabi and our experience there. You know, what do I feel like at Kajabi we got right? What do I feel like we got wrong or missed and maybe should have focused on a little bit more? What do I believe is the prioritization and focus that makes a great business and all of the learnings from that season with a little bit of stories of all the stuff we screwed up along the way? Well, cool. Well, you at least have one pre-sale. I'm game. Let me know when it comes Rock out. Rock on, dude. Mayor of Podcast Town picking it up. I love it. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I, I definitely very much agree with changing lives through enterprise. You know, I, I love the work that you guys are doing. I, I think it's something truly that entrepreneurism is the greatest transformational force on the planet. And in today's highly politicized and triggered environment, entrepreneurship may be the only thing that saves it. So it is truly the great equalizer. It is the great opportunity that is available to everyone the moment they wake up and decide to go after something. And it, to me, is the highest calling anybody can ask for. So I, I'm thrilled that you guys are sharing that message. It's a message that I intend on sharing as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jonathan. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
everybody stay plugged in. The Mara Podcast Town is not going to let you down. He's always going to be bringing you unbelievable insights and guests that are dedicated to building your business. So make sure you keep it locked here. Plug in every week or however often you have the opportunity. And my pleasure to play a small part in it. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you got value from today's show, we want you to join the Enterprises Elite email list for more nuggets and resources. And remember, no excuses, just execution. Go get it. What a fantastic episode. Hey, listen, I want to know something. What is the top concern that you have in your business? Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it finance? Operations? Shoot me an email, mayor at podcasttown.net. I want to start a conversation around these areas of business and how we can work together and help each other shine even brighter.